Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Good morning, welcome everyone. We are looking into the 18th day of April on this day in history to see what happened on this day. Famous quote from Horace, the Roman poet. He has the deed half done, who has made a beginning. There you go. Starting a new project, it's half done. (laughs) If you've made a beginning. The Beirut embassy bombing happened on this day in April 18th, 1983. The suicide truck bomber strikes U.S. Embassy in Beirut, Beirut, killing 17 Americans and 46 Lebanese, marking the beginning of the Islamic attacks on U.S. targets, uh, and remains the most lethal attack in the CIA's history, and etc., etc. Um, war correspondent Ernie Pyle killed. The American Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and war correspondent Ernie Pyle is killed by enemy fire during World War II battle of Okinawa on this day in 1945. And on this day, World War II, first U.S. bombing of Japanese mainland, April 18, 1942. Jimmy Doolittle's raid on Tokyo with 16 B-25 bombers. And I think a movie was made about this. And the bombers take, took off from the USS Hornet, and due to the bombers' high fuel consumption, B-52 bombers um, take off from the USS instead of returning to the Hornet after Hornet Bliss, not really written very well. But anyway, they there was quite a scary operation they did. And if you're a Superman fan, the action comics started on this day in 1938. And this great San Francisco earthquake in 1906, April 18th, 1906. And it destroyed 25,000 buildings, killing thousands of people. Over 80% of San Francisco was destroyed by an earthquake. And this was always an interesting one. We cover this every year. April 18th, 1844, according to the religious followers of William Miller, the Millerites, many of whom gave away their earthly possessions in preparation for the event. The prediction was based on the 2,300-day prophecy of Daniel 18, 14 from the Bible. Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Miller assumed that the cleansing represented the earth's purification by fire at Christ's second coming. Using the day-year principle, Miller predicted the day to mean a calendar year, setting the starting date at 457 BC, BC decreed to rebuild the Jerusalem um, by Artaxerxes I of Persia. He, con- he concluded the end of the world would come on between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. When that didn't happen, they assumed that they had gotten the biblical chronologies wrong and set a new date of April 18th, 1844 using the Karite Jewish calendar as opposed to the rabbinic calendar they had used previously. When that didn't happen, his followers adjusted the prediction to October 22nd. The failure of this prediction became known as the Great Disappointment. Some of the disappointed Millerites left the group and went on to become the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So not a good beginning for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
And again, um, we do not know the day or the hour when the Lord is going to come back and why he would think it's the end of the world when we haven't gone through the tribulation. These are people that inter interpret everything in the book of Revelation as allegorical, yet they take a prophecy in Daniel and make it literal and uh, take other things as uh, literal that they shouldn't. So this is why they predicted the end of the world. Did not work so good. Paul Revere's famous ride was on this day in 1775, announcing the arrival of the British during the American Revolution. They confiscated his horse. They captured him, and, and unable to complete his ride, he returned to Lexington on foot. There you go. And there's a lot more we could go into, but we'll just uh, we'll jump over into the grand it, dad jokes. Here's a good one. What's worth, actually, this is more of a saying. This is more of a truth than a dad joke, but what's worse than biting into an apple and finding a worm? Biting into an apple and finding half a worm. I just got my doctor's test results, and I'm really upset. It turns out that I'm not going to be a doctor. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. We are in the book of Judges, we're in Judges chapter 11, so let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Thank you, Father, for our time together, and we do come humbly before you asking you to guide us through your word so that we understand the things that you want us to see. You wrote these, God, you dedicated them, God, uh, from the beginning of time. You wrote them through your prophets for our benefit, so we ask you to now reveal these truths to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges chapter 11. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Japheth. Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went out to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we might fight against the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now turned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, Will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against the land. 
The king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon, as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably now. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent, so Israel remained at Kadesh. And they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and around the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab, and they camped beyond the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, and to the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people in the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of the country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord, our God, has driven out before us, we will possess it. Now, are you any better than Balak, son of Zephor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel, or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon, in the villages, and in Aror, in the villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message of Jephthah, which Jephthah sent him. Verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, then when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it will be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter at Aror to the entrance of Minith, 20 cities as far as the Arbel Keramim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house in Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. And she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you and your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months 
that I might go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months. And she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which she had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus, it was the custom of Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Chapter 12. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed the Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you, Jephthah said to them. I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon when I called you, and you did not deliver me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say, Are you an Ephraimite? And if they said no, they would say to him, Say now, Shibboleth. But he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him. And slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus they fell at that time. 42,000 of Ephraim. Jephthah judged Israel six years. And Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Now Ibzan of Bethlehem judged over after him. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. And Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Now Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel after him, and he judged Israel ten years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried in Ajalon, the land of Zebulun. Now Abdon, the son of Hillel, of the Pirithonite, judged Israel after him. And he had forty sons and thirty grandsons, who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. And Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pithonite, died and was buried in Python, in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. Okay, a lot going on there. First, just details. There are times in the Bible where these large numbers, 70 donkeys, 40 kids, 40 sons, 40, 40 daughters, are roundabout figures to really illustrate blessings and God's blessing upon their life that they were prolific and had a large family did not always mean that was the exact number. They were representative numbers of things. That's usually why they're rounded up to to a round number 30 or 40 or 70. Biblical numbers meaning different things. And you can there's a whole study on that. Interesting. Uh, so we see <laughs> we see we'll backtrack a little bit. Ephraim fighting against their brothers after this battle. What's that all about? Well, remember, once you win a battle, you get the booty. You get all the stuff uh, as well. And so apparently he was in a pinch and needed Ephraim to come help him. And they were like, "Uh, maybe not. I'm not sure you're going to win this battle. No, we'll just hang out. And then they do win the battle. And, of course, they get all the victory. They get the honor. And they get all the booty. They get all the stuff. Then they come and go, what are you doing? Going to the battle without us. And uh, 
you know, we don't get anything and we don't get any honor. We don't get any treasure. We don't get everything. And, um, and, and again, uh, probably more so, God is using this to judge them Ephraim, for their unwillingness to trust him to win the battle. Remember, that was their call as Israel to go in and take out those nations that God had told them to take out, Amorites being one of them. And so they were not obeying God by going in and fighting against Ammon. And so in that disobedience and their unwillingness to even help a brother in need of another tribe, then God says, okay, he judges them for that, and they have to pay a very heavy price to, again, hopefully wake up. This is the time of the judges. This is the time where every man is doing what's right in his own eyes. They're, they don't have a, a good model of leadership. They're, they weren't supposed to need one. They were supposed to just be reading the law every day and reading it and following it, exactly what we're trying to do now in the Bible ourselves as we meet together. Read it, follow it, but we have the advantage and the blessing of the Holy Spirit and Jesus, who is the model for us to always keep in front of ourselves in all things. So that's what happened there in that chapter. But when you go way back to what happens in the beginning, when this judge is comes upon the scene, he's a rebel too. I mean, he's a rebel. He's kicked out of, of his village. Nobody wants him. And he obviously gathers around himself a lot of tough guys and uh, they're obviously something to reckon with because when they're in a pinch and they need help militarily they go to him now he doesn't seem to be at that moment or at that time described as a rabbi or a spiritual man but he believed in Yahweh he was he was obviously strongly believed in Yahweh and because of that faith God then then comes upon him in a mighty way and he, you see he consults the Lord twice goes to the Lord when he first is called and, and seeks God out. God, that's different from all these other kings and things when they were going to go into battle in this time. Seeks God on whether or not to, what to do. And God gives him this amazing amount of wisdom. If you read him, what he says in his understanding of the history of Israel, all the way 300 years earlier, it's amazing. They're having a territorial dispute of something that happened 300 years earlier. But he's got all the facts. He said, no, we didn't try and take it. We tried everything not to take it, go around you guys and uh, stay out of your way. But you kept poking uh, there and, and, you know, you finally provoked us into a war with you and we won. And then he throws it back on them. And look, you guys worship Chemosh. So Chemosh gives you your land. Yahweh gives us our land. How do you argue with that? Because that's what they believed. If they were going to have control of the land, it was going to be their God that gave it to them. So it's kind of like saying, how can you argue that? It was our God that gave us the land. And besides, it was 300 years ago. So sorry, we're not going to do anything. So the king of Ammon still decides he wants this land for himself, and he attacks it. Now he goes, of course, he goes to, to God, and he says, whatever comes out of my door... You know, I'll sacrifice to you when I get back. And so God gives him the victory, expecting him to kill his daughter, of course, right? Oh, yeah, God's saying, yes, all right. Human sacrifice, that's what I'm all about. Go home and God's sovereign, right? And he works the way he wants to. And obviously God would have known beforehand that his daughter was going to come out that door. And there are people that believe, well, okay, he said he did to his daughter as he promised God, so he must have sacrificed her. Wrong. There's no way... He would have sacrificed his daughter because it was 
against the law. It was the primary thing. It's one of the main things in the law. He says, I am not like the other gods. I do not require the blood of human sacrifice. So what it was, what was going on there? Well, basically, the only thing that makes sense in context was that he offered her up holy to the Lord like a Nazarite would from like Samuel saying, Lord, she's all yours. She's going to remain yours. She will not marry. She will remain a virgin. She is now wholly dedicated to you. It is a sacrifice, but it's a living sacrifice. I'm offering up my daughter as a living sacrifice to you, wholly dedicated and given over to you. So she goes up to weep because of her virginity, not because she's going to die. She's going to realize that she's not going to marry or have children. And so for that, that was the hope of the this Jewish woman. And of course, looking forward to the Messiah as well. Bearing, of course, a big deal. And, and to be, you were honored as a woman to be married and have a child. And she's now realizing she's not. But indeed, the honor was bigger because now she is wholly dedicated unto the Lord. And, uh, and this is where most good theologians stand on this because we do not serve a God, it's clear in the Bible, that requires human sacrifice. He would have been creating, he would have been doing a bigger sin by sacrificing his daughter than the sin of breaking his covenant or his promise to sacrifice something, right? You don't say, oh, I got cre- to do a bigger sin in order to keep not breaking the other vow, which would be a sin. So that is not a hard issue for me. Some people struggle with it, but um, that's how I see that. That worked out. Luke chapter 14 now, the verse 25. We're finishing off Luke 14. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Everyone who does not carry his own cross and comes after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost and see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all will observe it and begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and is not able to finish. Or what king? When he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be in my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He was ears to hear. Let him hear. So I may have read that yesterday. Maybe I went, maybe I went too far. But regardless, it's, it's good to f- reflect back on this and even connect it to the Old Testament a little bit because remember what the model we saw with um, Jephthah and his daughter, that God is a consistent God, a loving God. He does not change. And he doesn't, and so when we read things like, uh, you know, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciples, it doesn't nullify or change what God had said in the law that we are to honor our father and our mother. See, that would be completely an oxymoron 
For God to say you have to honor your father and mother, and he who curses against his father and mother, you know, will be judged and killed. And then say, oh, but by the way, I know I said all that, but I really want you to hate your mother and father and your brother and sister and everything. So when we look at those things, we go, okay, he is using comparisons, and he's giving us illustrations to focus us in on something. And when you know the consistency of the love of God and how he is throughout the Bible, and you read this, you go, wait a minute, I know what he's getting at. It's a comparison thing. You have to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, to the point where his love is weighed on the scale, is way down here, and your love of your parents is up here. Because in the Jewish culture, and in many cultures today, the son would have this overemphasis, or I should say, focus and love on their parents, where they could not conceive of God being their father, having more authority and being literally their father and being over their life more than their parents. And so it's illustrative. You need to love me more than you love them. And the whole word hate there is just, is we use that word hate in a different vernacular and concept in English. But the concept in, in the Hebrew and, and the Greek, as I think that is being demonstrated, is that you got to love me more. It's really that simple. And we tell people that all the time. We know as believers that our first love has to be God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we love God with all our heart, we love the Lord Jesus as our Savior, all these other loves will be blessed and benefit. So the highest love I can have for my parents, the highest love I can have for my wife and my children is to love God more. There's a comparison Jesus gives us as illustrative to show you this is how your mind should be directed in those, in those areas. The same thing with giving up possessions. He says you need to be let go of those possessions. He did not call all Christians in all places at all times to give up all their possessions. He did not do that because we see there was rich believers in the church at that time. And he didn't call Joseph of Arimathea to give up his wealth, give up that big expensive tomb, and come follow me. No, he used it for the glory of the kingdom of God. And God blesses people with wealth. See it all through the Old Testament. There were those in the New Testament that had wealth as well. So they dedicated those things to God. They don't let their possessions own them. They dedicate them and use them for the kingdom. All right. Now, Charles Spurgeon, I will be with thee and will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Joshua 1.5. The word to Joshua is often quoted. It is the basis of of that New Testament word, he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Beloved, a life of warfare is before us, but the Lord of hosts is within us. We are called to lead a great but fickle people. This promise guarantees us all the wisdom and prudence that we shall need. Have we to contend with cunning and powerful enemies? Here is strength and valor, prowess and victory. Have we a vast heritage to win? By this sign, we shall achieve our purpose. The Lord himself is with us. It would be woe to us indeed if Jehovah could fail us. But as this can never be, the winds of disquietude are laid to sleep in the caverns of divine faithfulness. On no one occasion will the Lord desert us. Happen what may, he will be at our side. Friends drop from us. Their help is but an April shower. But God is faithful. Jesus is the same forever. And the Holy Spirit abideth in us. Come, my heart, be calm and hopeful today. 
Clouds may gather, but the Lord can blow them away. Since God will not fail me, my faith shall not fail. And as he will not forsake me, neither will I forsake him. Oh, for a restful faith. Tremendous. Father God, we thank you for this morning and ask you to give us that restful faith and to continually and constantly remember that you will never leave us or forsake us. And we have times when we feel alone, when we feel abandoned, we feel confused. There is no shortage of influences through television, movies, all the stuff on the internet, constantly trying to get us to become fatalistic and to think there is no hope and that our lives have no hope and that there is no point to life. This seems to be one of the favorite uh, tactics of the enemy. Yet we know that you spoke to Joshua, you spoke to the disciples, you spoke to all of them and said, I do have purpose for you. I do have a reason for your life. And it is because I simply want to love you and have a relationship with you. I want to be your father. I want you to come into my kingdom, into my realm, and be a part of my family. So none of us are alone, and none of us are cut off, even when we feel it. Even when we're hurting, even when we have physical ailments, we know that you're still there and will not leave us. So we thank you and rejoice in that today, and may you continue to strengthen us through that. Especially the youth that are getting this daily and are falling into this lie and this trap that they are worthless and they have no meaning, no purpose. So many de dreadfully bad things going on, uh, on on the internet. So we just ask you for your strength and your healing upon young hearts, even us older people, God, with our hearts as well. Keep us strong, God. Keep us right in the center of your will and serving you in these days ahead. We thank you for those that are ministering faithfully, especially now in these war-turned areas, these difficult areas that are battling against Christians on so many fronts. We thank you for Tony and, and Bernice and what they're doing with their kids, for Estio there in Italy, and uh, my other kids ministering the churches in the U.S., plus so many uh, outreach ministries going on through Calvary chapels all over the place. Thank you for Jesser and his family and their ministry. Bless this trip to Peru and the whosoevers and what you're doing there, as well as everything you're doing at the retreat center through Randy Doty and their upcoming conferences. So we thank you and we bless you, God, in all that you are doing in these days and ask you to bless the mission today, continue to strengthen the kids, give them just an awesome um, time of, of fellowship and, and a new renewed energy as they're coming back from the um, retreat and uh, help Renee and his baby and Juan Carlos and Claudia have everything just laid out so they can continue to grow in you in Christ. Thank you for what you'll do today and all that you'll do tomorrow in Jesus name. Amen. That will do it for today. So thank you guys very much. Be praying uh, for John and Pam. going to go home today on the plane. They'll be leaving in a few hours. So say a prayer for their safe return home. It was fun having them. And uh, we will look forward to seeing you guys at the same time tomorrow. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.